MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 153 of Clean Up on aisle 45. It's Wednesday, December 27th, 2023. It's our final show of the year. I'm Pete Ooh. Strzok. Hey, Pete. I'm Allison Gill. And if I sound echoey, it's because I'm uh, recording from uh, from afar. I'm not in my studio. I'm traveling for the holidays. So uh, I do apologize to our audiophiles for, uh, for the echo that you're going to hear. Uh, but we have a lot to cover today. Per usual, it never stops, including updates on the E. Jean Carroll case, which is set to go to trial January 16th. We have updates on the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial and closing arguments for that are January 11th. And we have a brand new phone call, a perfect phone call of Donald Trump and Ronna McDaniel pressuring Michigan canvassers not to certify the Detroit election results. And Pete, these are different from the two lawmakers, including Lee Chatfield, whose two uh, staffers were just indicted by Dana Nessel. This is different from the those two lawmakers traveling to D.C. to speak with Donald Trump. These are two of the canvassers and canvassers were the member Hartman and the other one who had to sign off basically on the certif certification of the election. Yeah. And I'm curious, and we can talk about here in a little bit, how new this is. I mean, it's new to us in the public, right? But the question is, is it new to Dana Nessel and her investigators in Michigan? Is it new to Jack Smith and his federal investigators? I suspect it is not. Uh, but certainly uh, a bunch to talk about there, and not just in uh, New York and Michigan, but we have a lot to cover in Georgia as well, including some big court losses for Jeffrey Clark and Mark Meadows, and Trevian Cootie's lawyers have withdrawn from representing her. We also have some updates on Rudy Giuliani and a sleeper trial that could start in March if the D.C. Jack Smith trial is delayed by Trump's immunity appeal. But first, we have some patrons to thank. Your support makes this show possible. So thank you. Thank you so very much. We have Catherine Gilbert White is totally awesome at her job. Krista Manning only joined to hear PS swear heart. You both. Thanks for all you do. Devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for an election to steal. He was in a bind. He was way behind by 11,780 votes. Star Lanus, Sharon Tikalski, take a load off. Fonny. Take a load off for free. Take a load off, Fonny, and 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 you put the load right on DJT at Dirt Road Dems, Christine Tachner, and David Chandler. Thank all of you so very much. Uh, particularly at the end of the year, we are especially thankful for you. 
because you make this possible. All of the the journalism that we're bringing to you, uh, the folks behind the scenes who do extraordinary work to put the show together, you're the ones who make it possible. So thank you so very much for being part of the team. Yeah. And these are our Hall of Famers. This is the Hall of Fame show. So uh, extra special thanks to y'all. All right. Um, there were a couple of bombshell news stories this week. So let's start with one of them in the Fulton County case. The 11th Circuit has denied Mark Meadows' bid to remove his case from state court to federal court. And it's not really the denial that's the news, because we were kind of expecting it to be denied. But it's the reasons why and the judge that penned the opinion. The case was argued before a three-judge panel in the 11th Circuit, notoriously conservative circuit, and famously expeditious circuit. And the three judges hearing the case were Judge Pryor, who's a GW appointee, Judge Abudu, a Biden appointee, and Judge Rosenbaum, an Obama appointee. Now, Judge Pryor, he's the chief judge of the 11th Circuit. This three-judge panel unanimously rejected Mark Meadows' motion to remove his case to federal court for two reasons. First, they argued that the removal statute does not apply to former federal officials. But even if it did, the three-judge panel says that the behavior Meadows is charged with does not fall within the scope of his job as the White House chief of staff. In fact, quite the opposite. Much of his behavior actually violated the Hatch Act. <laughs> and Judge Pryor, the conservative judge who is well-respected by conservatives on the Supreme Court and on the federal bench and is said to have a close relationship with Clarence Thomas, ruled that because elections are administered by the states and not the federal government, the executive branch employees, they cannot claim that election oversight is part of their job. Additionally, campaigning or electioneering is not part of anyone's job. The courts and the DOJ have been consistent on this point in decisions going back to Mo Brooks trying to get certified by the DOJ. Uh, the district court in this case also has made this ruling several times, the D.C. Circuit in the January 6th case and, and more. So, Pete, I think this decision and the fact that it, it was Judge Pryor who penned it, I think it'll have far-reaching implications for other cases. And I imagine it'll be maybe cited in Jack Smith's brief due to the D.C. Circuit Court in Trump's bid to have his case tossed out on immunity grounds. Trump is arguing that everything he did was within the outer perimeter of his duties as president. So I would look for Jack Smith to quote Judge Pryor and his decision in the Meadows case, maybe in an even-if scenario, when he hands in his response on December 30th. That's when that's due. Three more sleeps. As in, you know, maybe saying something like, presidents do not have the divine right of kings, but even if this court determines a president enjoys some kind of criminal immunity uh, for official acts, it, you can't on these acts. The administration of elections cannot be conducted by members of the executive branch as elections are administered by the states. See Judge Pryor. They could quote Judge Chutkin. Maybe the several SCOTUS decisions that have come out, uh, like Moore v. Harper, for example, that say the same thing. Um, Sandlin, um, Holder. There's a lot of SCOTUS decisions that fall in this category. Um, decisions where they've said that the, s the states administer their own elections. So I imagine they'll cite all of these um, and, and more. And I, w that's what I'm looking for in this new uh, Jack Smith filing. And that's why I think this Meadows decision is so important. 
Yeah, I think for sure it'll show up. And if not, I mean, it's one thing. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is not bound by anything the Fifth Circuit decides or the Eleventh Circuit decides or any other circuit outside of D.C. decides. But they will certainly take it into account, and particularly when it gets to the Supreme Court. And I think this is one of the you know, several issues that ultimately the Supreme Court is going to rule on. And they're going to look and say, you know, one, if there is a disagreement between circuits, that's one instance where the Supreme Court will take cases. And two, certainly in very notable, important cases, and this is one, they it doesn't matter whether you've got unanimity or not on the at the circuit court of appeals level, they're going to, I think, weigh on, on this amongst other uh, Trump issues. But Clearly, this idea of where that outer perimeter of the presidential duties lie is uh, key to what Trump is going to argue. And I think, you know, the exactly I agree with you, based on prior being such a well-regarded, very conservative judge, uh, well-regarded by the conservatives of the Supreme Court, I think this is going to be a very powerful piece of reasoning. Whether or not Jack Smith includes it or not, it is going to be something that I think ultimately when it does go before the Supreme Court is going to get included. So if they can say... And they have strong uh, precedent coming out of the 11th Circuit. If they have, we'll see what D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals says. I suspect they're going to find similarly when it comes to Trump that he does not have immunity for uh, doing the things he did on the run up to uh, uh, January 6th, that the Supreme Court will have a body of courts of appeal saying, no, this is outside your duties. Uh, this was electioneering. This is not presidential duty. And despite what Trump, I'm sure, is going to argue that, well, I thought there was fraud and I have a duty to investigate it. I don't think that's going to uh, carry weight. But you're right. Going to the fact this is, uh, you know, Mark Meadows, not Trump. This is Georgia and the 11th Circuit, not D.C. It's all related. And uh, there's no there's a little doubt in my mind that the justices and their clerks are reading and following what other courts are doing. That's such a good point because, like you said, district courts, um, uh, you know, are bound by the circuit that they're part of, and the circuit courts are, you know, uh, their own thing. But, but you know, as you said, the Supreme Court usually likes to take these cases where, where there's disagreements between circuit courts, and there is no circuit court in disagreement with the fact that states administer their own elections. So. If it is cited, perhaps it will be cited, uh, you know, in in the interest of consistency among the circuits, like you said, and not necessarily, you know, you're held to this ruling because they aren't, you know, the each circuit is its own circuit and D.C. circuit is different from 11th circuit. But yeah, it, for, for consistency's sake and the fact, you know, maybe when this goes up to the Supreme Court, then that could be uh, a pretty a compelling argument. We have no, you know, why are you... We have no disagreements between circuits here. I, we haven't seen a circuit that said that the states don't get to administer their own elections. And you, Supreme Court yourself, have said on multiple occasions, especially in the last five years, that they're administered. And also, I think this could impact that Colorado case. You know, we've we've been covering the Colorado case, and the Colorado Supreme Court has ruled uh, that Donald engaged in insurrection and that uh, he is covered, the president is covered by Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment, but also the argument that states administer their own elections means that if the Supreme Court wants to overturn this, which I think they will, they're going to have to tie themselves into knots to do it uh, because of their own rulings on states administering their own elections. Uh, and and I think that this prior case, you know, like I said, because he's really good friends with Clarence Thomas, 
could make it a little, it's going to make it really interesting to see how the Supreme Court overturns Colorado, because like I said, I think they will. Yeah, I think so too. And there are other states coming. I mean, there, there, there's several, I think, maybe even 10 or more states that have similar challenges on the books. And I would expect some, if not all, probably some to be like Colorado and decide that no, his, his acts in fact did trigger uh, the 14th Amendment and he can't be on the ballot. So when the court takes this on and, you know, I think I agree with you is going to rule that, you know, he can't be barred from the ballot. They're going to have to do that in a way that has some universal applicability beyond Colorado. So I, I think, you know, there is, yeah, the states do um, conduct their own voting, but you're talking about triggering the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, not of the state of Colorado, but of the United States of America. So there's a federal hook there. There is a Supreme Court interest since you're talking about the U.S. Constitution rather than the state constitution, which is creating this action. But you know, all of this is coming together and, and these things all overlap. And so on the one hand, while I don't you know, I don't have a lot of hope that the court is going to say, yeah, Trump is going to remain off the ballot. I do have some hope that, you know, particularly given this ruling uh, that that Judge Pryor penned, that they're going to say no. You know, what you were doing, what you're alleged to have done uh, in the run up to January 6th was not presidential duties. You don't have immunity and that you can face trial. I And my biggest worry is for them to actually get to the point where they're saying it is going to be well in the next year. Uh, and yeah. that's, you know, that's the biggest concern from of, of mine. What's cool is that, well, cool is a weird word for it, but, you know, a lot of people are like, well, he defaults to the ballot in Colorado if Supreme Court doesn't intervene. But Trump really can't just let that languish. He sort of has to go to the Supreme Court with this because of those other states that you mentioned. For example, in Maine right now, um, it's not in the courts yet, but the Secretary of State is deciding whether or not to put Trump on the ballot. And Colorado's finding that he engaged in insurrection kind of holds them to that. And so those kinds of Secretary of State decisions that haven't made it to court yet make it impossible for Trump to just keep his hands off of this. He really needs to overturn what the Colorado Supreme Court ruled in order to make it onto the ballot in some of these other states. So it'll be interesting to see in the next month or two how that all plays out. Yeah, you know, and talking to other states, I mean, we're not talking just about whether or not he can make it onto the ballot. I mean, there's new there's new potentially criminal activity coming to light, and this is the other big story of the week, that there's a new recording of a Trump phone call, not the Raffensperger, Georgia phone call. There's a new phone call involving former President Trump and Ronald McDaniel, the head of the RNC, on one side, and two Michigan canvassers on the other. Now, the call took place back in November 17th, 2020, so fully a month before you know the really heated stuff started going on around the White House with you know, meetings with Congress people and you know Sidney Powell and, and Mike Flynn and all those folks. This is a month prior to that. And after this call on November 17th, keep in mind, in addition to all those meetings, there were breaches of voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia, and uh, as well as up in uh, northern Michigan and Pennsylvania as well. But on this phone call, Ron McDaniel, who stunningly to me remains the GOP chairwoman, <laughs> the losingest, most horribly record to date of any GOP chair in modern history, Ronna... <laughs> Romney McDaniel, by the way, relative of Mitt Romney, no friend of President Trump at all, still, still the current GOP chairwoman. But in any event, Rana and Trump both told these Michigan canvassers, don't sign 
the certification of Joe Biden's victory. And if you don't, we'll, uh, we'll get you legal representation. Now, the call has long been known to reporters, but the content of the call is what's new. And uh, several reporters, at least I think from the Detroit Free Press, heard the call. I don't think it was the entirety of the call. It sounds like somebody started recording sort of midway through the conversation and may or may not have recorded it all the way through. But in any event, now reporters have heard it. And what's interesting are the implications of this. Like, you know, as you mentioned, Michigan has already indicted their 16 fraudulent electors. And the question with this is, okay, are there more coming? Is Rana getting uh, potentially charged? Is Trump potentially facing charges? And there's certainly a question of whether or not this is something of value, right? I mean, it's like, don't sign the certification and we won't get you legal representation. There's a quid pro quo there, right? If you do this for, if you do this for me, I, in exchange, I will provide you legal representation. And the question is not only is that, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, I I exchange, is it a conspiracy in the context of, you know, federal campaign finance laws? Does it trigger any of those because you're giving them something of value? There, there are a lot of potential criminal aspects to this, both at the federal level, as well as at the Michigan state level. And as we've seen, Michigan has been out in front doing an extraordinary job of investigating and charging people involved with fraud around the uh, 2020 elections. So, you know, all of this, I don't, you know, who, why now? Why did it make it to the press? Who played it? Uh, to the press? You know, is somebody trying to get out ahead of something, ahead of some indictments? Is somebody cooperating? You know, is Rana cooperating? Uh, you know, God knows Trump is not. But uh, it, it, at some point, her behavior across the board and her presence, I mean, keep in mind, she was, you know, she was at and around so many of these bad acts surrounding the alleged criminal activity in, in 2020. It is surprising to me that she hasn't faced criminal exposure that we know of anywhere. But this this Michigan, the reporting about the, the conversation sure doesn't look good. You know, she was heavily involved in what um, Andy and I were talking about pretty early on. About a year ago, we started talking about potential fraud charges for fundraising off the big lie, you know, deceiving donors. Um, and, and, and Rana was part of you know, with Salesforce, that third party vendor to set up those ads um, and and put them out. And recently, Jack Smith, um, for reasons we don't know, pulled his subpoenas of the Trump campaign um, and, and the RNC. And so that that right there either says he's he's not going after those charges or perhaps he's got somebody who's giving him all the information he needs and he doesn't have to have the subpoenas out there anymore, which is why I keep thinking of Rana McDaniel. And it wouldn't be unheard of for somebody who continues to work for Trump or the Republican Party to be assisting uh, investigators, whether they're state or federal investigators, because we've got you know, uh, the Wiles uh, lady who works on his campaign now. We've got several people who continue to work for Donald Trump, who are also cooperating uh, with the government, or at least if they're not fully cooperating, they are giving information uh, to, to, the, to the government, whether, like I said, whether it's state or federal. So that, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where Michigan goes with this. Are they going to go full on like Fonnie Willis did and, and indict all the way up the chain? Or are they in more communication with uh, Jack Smith and trying to parse those and indictments out, or maybe they just don't have enough evidence in the state or the federal case to to bring this. But this seems to me like a pretty blatant 
quid pro quo, in-kind donation, uh, bribery. Remember how uh, the Supreme Court gutted the the bribery and corruption laws so that you had to be very uh, kind of uh, overtly explicit about your quid pro quo? This seems to fall into that category. I mean, it's not gold bars with serial numbers like Menendez, but... You know, on a recording to say, if you break this law, we will pay for your legal representation. That seems like it could fall under those bribery and corruption um, uh, charges. But I, you know, I don't know enough about the law. But it, it would it would be weird to me at this point, Pete, to just sort of let this go. You know? Yeah, completely. And I need to correct what I said earlier. It wasn't the free press. This is actually out of the Detroit News and Craig Mauger. But you know, he he points out that it was somebody who was recorded it, who was present for part of the conversation, noted that, you know, Ron McDaniel is a Michigan native, but it starts out, you know, Trump is sitting there saying, Ron McDaniel says you'd look, quote unquote, terrible if you signed the documents after they first voted in opposition. And then Trump continues, we've got to fight for our country. We can't let these people take our country away from us. And then McDaniel continues, if you can go home tonight, do not sign it. We will get you attorneys. To which Trump added, we'll take care of that. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, great reporting uh, for, from Craig Mauger, but it, it's, it is hard to look at that and not see that this is exactly a, you know, don't do this. We'll get you attorneys in exchange. So yeah. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But, I, you know, and again, I think, you know, Dana Nessel and the entire the, the attorney general's office out of Michigan has been very strong in pursuing election crime. and. I, I would be willing to bet this this public reporting is not the first time uh, they have heard uh, the the tapes. I would hope, but you know, stay tuned. Yeah, no, I I I would think so too, uh, and I imagine it was somebody you know because people started recording phone calls with Trump when they realized he was pressuring them to violate their oaths of office. Raffensperger, for example, like we better record these calls. The the guy in Arizona just didn't answer his phone. <laughs> you know, so I could imagine, I could envision a, a scenario where somebody was on that call with the canvassers on their end of the line and said, well, shit, we better record this. They're telling us to break the law. But who knows where they came from? I'm assuming uh, we'll find out at some point. But we um, we patiently await all of this information, whether it comes through speaking indictments, additional indictments, superseding indictments, cleanup indictments in, the, in, in D.C. from Jack Smith or his report for his declination decisions. But uh, we, I think we will get that information. It's just a, just a question of when. All right, everybody, we have more news to get to, but we have to take a quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... 
How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. We have more Hall of Fame patrons to thank. Dr. David, Karen Sherman, Lisa Rollison, Top Secret, Redacted, Redacted, or Con No Foreign FISA, Mr. Halfspeed, Cindy McNary, Tiffany Trump was adopted, Maria Tovar, Fran Reichenbach, and Suzanne Ashworth. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this without you. All right, Pete, where should we head to next? Well, let's see. Given the uh, closing arguments in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case are happening January 11th, less than uh, two weeks away, and the Eugene defamation trial begins on January 16th, let's head up to New York. First up, let's start with the last first in the Eugene Carroll case. Donald Trump appears to be scrambling to block a specific expert witness from testifying, one that testified in the Rudy Giuliani defamation trial. Now, this is from Jose Paglieri at the Daily Beast. At this point, the last person Trump's lawyers want to see is the court expert who put a hefty nine-figure price tag on Giuliani's misbehavior. The target of their ire? A Northwestern University marketing professor who analyzes social media trends. Court records show that the very same day Ashley Humphreys testified in, testified in D.C. at Giuliani's defamation trial last week, a Trump lawyer in New Jersey asked a federal judge in New York to block Humphreys from testifying against the former president. Quote, this court should simply exclude Dr. Humphreys' testimony altogether, unquote. Insert <laughs> your airplane joke here. Trump defense <laughs> lawyer Michael Madeo wrote last Wednesday, asking the judge for a last-minute show of grace to avoid what could be a financial coup de grace for Trump. However, the defense team's reasons for trying to push out Humphreys this late in the game seem quite ironic for a real estate tycoon who just wrapped up a trial about the way he committed bank fraud by vastly overstating his wealth. In their view, Humphreys' assessments are inflated. Now, Humphreys isn't exactly new on the scene. When Trump ghosted his own civil rape trial against Carol in the spring, which focused mostly on whether the sexual assault actually happened at a Manhattan department store in the 1990s, the college professor testified about just how badly Trump's public denials affected the journalist's reputation. At the end of that trial, jurors came fairly close to meeting that sum. Of the $5 million they awarded Carol, 
the cost they associated with Humphrey's reputation repair was $1.7 million. However, that first Carroll trial focused on a relatively obscure public statement Trump made on October 12th, 2022, after he left office, at a time when the White House press corps wasn't even circulating every flippant remark that came out of his mouth. Although the statement was posted to his eponymous website and his Truth Social Media Network account, it didn't carry nearly as far as the initial denials he made as president. And, you know, I'll add that I watched the the one the morning I went to Rudy's trial with, with Shane Moss and Ruby Freeman. Humphreys was on the stand. Uh, she mm. went through and spent the that was the entirety of the morning. She was on the stand walking through her methodology, the report, how she went about the various phases of identifying what the defamatory statements were, their reach, and the cost of what the damage was and the cost of remediating it. And it was very compelling. I mean, she is, you know, she, she is a professor, but not kind of an ivory tower, hard to understand professor. I thought she did an excellent job of explaining to the jury in terms and in a way the jury could understand exactly what her process was, that it wasn't, you know, that it was a rigorous process walking through the you know, the various sources of her data and how she went about calculating the damage. And, you know, at the end of the day, she's her expertise is on marketing and Internet communications and the way that information travels on the uh, on the Internet, how you change people's minds in a marketing context. And I thought she did an excellent job of explaining in a way that made sense if you take this sort of marketing idea, but instead of, you know, trying to sell Pepsi versus Coke, if you're trying to say change somebody's opinion in a political context, you can still put a marketing dollar figure to that. And I thought she did an excellent job. So I can understand completely why Trump wants her nowhere near the courtroom. She's already (laughs) been in the courtroom. I don't think he's going to succeed. But I, I think, you know, the point being that one prior trial was a statement he made after leaving office. This is going to be wildly more potentially uh, damaging in the context of the damage to E. Jean Carroll's reputation because he was – this upcoming trial is for the things he said while he had the bully pulpit of the presidency. And I mm. think that the reach – you know, and certainly she went through on Rudy's case. It was like a very narrow subset of defamatory statements that Rudy made. And it's, it's Rudy. I mean, Rudy got some play, but he didn't get anywhere near the play of what Trump did. So I, I think we're looking potentially at some extraordinary uh, potential uh, reputational harm costs coming up. Well, excellent. Yeah, because, you know, I, I often was I sat and wondered, like, why did E. Jean get only five million and Rudy got, you know, hit with one hundred and forty eight million dollar a judgment against him. And it's for, it's probably this lady. Um, and, and because like you said, um, those statements that Trump made for the first E. Jean case, uh, and Jose Paglieri pointed this out, it was a very obscure statement he made in 2022. So it didn't have, it didn't have the reach, uh, that Rudy's did. Right. Uh, but the, like you said, I, I have to imagine that things you say as president with the entire press corps listening, got a lot more traction than what Rudy did. So I don't know if we're going to see a, a larger settlement um, or not settlement, but a, a larger award for, for this particular uh, case over what Rudy had, but she's going to be up there um, spelling it out. And that makes sense why Trump is, is scrambling after what she did at the Rudy trial to, to keep her off of the witness stand. I don't think he'll be successful. 
No, I don't either. I mean, and if if he is not successful and she is able to, I mean, again, going back to what she did with with Rudy in the Shamos or uh, Ruby Freeman context, she went through every said, okay, here is Rudy's defamatory statement, and she did, you know, identified X many defamatory statements, and then for each one went through and said, it appeared on social media X many times, this many times on Twitter, this many times on Facebook that we can tell, this many times on YouTube, it appeared on broadcast media, this many times it appeared on uh, podcasts, this many times, and essentially went through and where it was possible to calculate the number of times it appeared, went through each of those sectors to calculate the total reach and then say, okay, what are the number of impressions that made? And if you have, you know, a certain, I'm sorry, this is getting way technical for the audience, but like, you know, out of a hundred people listening to it to in MSNBC, probably most of those people aren't going to really be receptive for what Trump is saying. But on the other hand, those people listening to Fox, it's going to be a much greater percentage. So using all these mathematical equations to kind of really bore down, it's not just, oh, a million people heard it, so therefore you got to change a million people's minds. No, she sort of like looked individual sort of media by media, appearance by appearance, to talk about the number of people who actually would have heard it and been receptive to what Trump was saying, and that those are the people whose minds you need to choose, so or change rather, to, to repair that reputation. So again, when it that damage award uh, for Shamos and Ruby Freeman wasn't everybody who heard what Rudy said. That was right. only to change the mind of the people, right, that she thought might have been receptive to what Rudy was saying. So it's a long way of saying it is a, I was impressed by the sort of scientific process of it and how rigorous it was. But the point being, if the number that was arrived at for Rudy in Rudy's reach it was as large as it is, Trump is absolutely going to be higher. So, you know, we'll see. I, you know, I don't know that that means that his, uh, you know, the award from New York will be the same. I don't know what New York's limits are. I don't know what the sort of context of what goes to the jury is or isn't, but it's, it's significant is the, you know, the short takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. And just um, for the record here, Trump has also asked for a 90 day stay while he appeals on this trial, while he appeals his immunity claim in the E. Jean case to the Supreme Court. So I don't think he'll get that 90 day stay, but we don't have a ruling yet. Um, but he, this is an immunity appeal, much like he's doing uh, in the D.C. case. Um, saying that he is absolutely immune from civil damages. But this has been decided multiple times, civil stuff for immunity. So it could uh, be either dis – I, I imagine they just won't hear it um, because it's already been ruled on in, in other cases and in other contexts, including the first E. Jean Carroll case. So we'll see how that uh, ends up turning out. Uh, and we'll let you know on this show when we get a ruling there. All right. Speaking of Rudy, as you know, a jury of eight unanimously awarded Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss $148 million in their defamation suit. A few quick updates, though, since that happened. Remember when Moss and Freeman filed a motion to seek money owed to them in other jurisdictions? And at that point, they were owed about $140,000 in attorney's fees, or maybe $240,000, somewhere in that range. Um, and that was in the form of sanctions issued by Judge Beryl Howell. And at the time, Judge Howell denied uh, Moss and Freeman's motion, uh, Moss and Freeman's motion saying, we're going to have a final judgment soon. Um, so we will just add this to that total judgment. And then you can ask to go after that money in other jurisdictions at that time. Cause I don't think I have the power 
to have you do that right now. I don't know what that looks like. So we'll just wait for the final judgment. Well, they did. And the same day, Judge Howell lifted the automatic stay that usually accompanies these awards and allowed Moss and Freeman to seek their money immediately and in other jurisdictions. But then Rudy immediately filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. We saw this coming, right? That filing puts the stay back on the award. It's automatic. And it maybe like might be why he filed for bankruptcy in the first place. And even though these kinds of torts aren't dischargeable under bankruptcy law, uh, Rudy knows the filing automatically stays the perm- the payment until the bankruptcy court rules. So he may just be buying a few more weeks to hang out with his money before every single dime he has and every single penny he makes going forward are given to Shamos and Ruby Freeman. Um, meanwhile, Ruby Freeman and Shamos have filed a second lawsuit against Rudy, this time for the defamatory statements he made outside the courtroom and on his podcast, all of which have already been determined to be defamatory. And they've asked for an injunction, which is a court order that would prevent Rudy from continuing to lie about the two women. And if that court order is issued, Pete, and his speech is enjoined, a violation could lead to jail time. And we've already seen Judge Beryl Howell uh, and her exasperation with Rudy's tactics here. She's at the end of her rope with Rudy. So maybe for the first time, we can envision someone being jailed for contempt. Uh, and I think that that that's, would be a pretty easy call for Judge Howell to make were she to enter this injunction. Yeah. And again, you know, she hinted at that the morning I was there before the jury came in when the when Seamus and Ruby Freeman's attorneys made the point that, hey, you know, after they went out and they were talking about us, you know, in violation of the court's order just last night. And she essentially alluded to the fact that, well, you know, that you had asked for injunctive relief earlier and perhaps I should have done that. And, you know, you may in the future and made comments that you know, there might be further things coming down the line separate and distinct from the damage determination from trial. So she she recurringly chided uh, Rudy's attorney about his inability to control his client. His clients continue talking about it. So if he does, I mean, that would be more, I think, satisfying for a lot of reasons to see Rudy get his ass thrown in jail for continued defamation. But the the other weird thing is like, I, had, I didn't realize like bankruptcy judges are actually our, our Article one that Congress establishes them. So, you know, they're judges, but and they're they're appointed not for life, but they have their own independence and their own timetable and way of doing things. And so it will be curious to see how fast this moves uh, and particularly given given all the dueling uh, creditors uh, who are trying to get after Rudy's money. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see where that goes. But, you know, like you said, the good news is that in the case of at least uh Moss and Freeman, this this never goes away. This is something that they can, uh, you know, seek to apply to Rudy for the rest of his natural life until that uh, judgment is satisfied. It never will be, but at least Rudy never has the uh, sort of peace of mind of having, you know, a free and clear financial picture for the rest of his life. Yeah, that or he may be in prison for something else Uh, (laughs) by that point. Uh, So we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening. Um, Time will tell. We have to take another quick break. We have more news to get to. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, 
comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler. How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. We have some more Hall of Fame patrons to thank. Punk Rock Liberal, BackdropBooks.com, Sloan Russell, Kirkland J. Bateman. Side effects include Idris Elbow in Mathlete's Foot. I'm a trash bag from Arizona. Scott Griegs. Please don't read this on the pod. We don't need a call out. Thanks for what you do. Mitchell and Admiral Rickover's Angry Ghost. Thank all of you so much for your for your extraordinary support. You know, your Hall of Fame patrons, uh, you go above and beyond and uh, truly uh, make everything that you're hearing possible. So thank you all very much. And so let's stay in New York uh, briefly for an update on the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial against Trump. January 11th, closing arguments are coming up. So uh, again, less than two weeks away. Uh, the next steps, so the judges, keep in mind, already ruled that Trump, his adult sons, and their businesses were liable for persistent and repeated fraud in a summary judgment opinion before this trial even began. He also ordered the dissolution of Trump's business certificates. Now, Trump has appealed that decision. But setting that aside, Engron will determine how much the Trumps and their company must pay and the fate of their business in New York. Remember, because this is the bench trial, because Alina Haber, somebody else, failed to check the jury trial requested block. Uh, now, with witness testimony concluded, the attorney general's office and Trump lawyers have until January 5th to file briefs summarizing their positions. Oral arguments are scheduled for January 11th. Judge Engeren is expected to issue his ruling soon, or soon after, on how much in disgorgement or ill-gotten gains Trump will need to pay based on the judge's earlier ruling that the financial statements were fraudulent. 
he is weighing six other causes of action, including conspiracy, issuing false financial statements, falsifying business records, and insurance fraud. The Attorney General's office is seeking more than $250 million and to ban Trump and his two adult sons from doing business in New York, period, at all, forevermore. And then last Thursday, December 21st, the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in the state because they Supreme Court, they name differently. The New York Court of Appeals is the, the highest level there is, formally rejected the latest bid by Trump to overturn the gag order that prevents Trump and his attorneys from attacking Judge Engren's law clerk. Judge Jenny Rivera refused to temporarily halt the gag order at Trump's request, keeping it in place while New York's highest court reviews the matter in the coming weeks. Okay, so this is where he asked for a stay pending a resolution in the highest court in the state. And the highest court in the state says, you can't have a stay, but we'll keep considering your arguments. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you. yes, you, you actually have to keep, you know, be civil and not go attacking the judge's clerk for these interim few weeks while we consider it because, you know, the entire purpose was he wanted a stay on the gag order. So presumably he could take to Truth Social or wherever else and continue to talk crap about the clerk. Well, and that was his reason for not testifying, for chickening out, for testifying in his own defense. Well, if I can't attack the law clerk, I have this gag order on me, so I can't testify. It's like, all you have to do is not attack the law clerk. Which is obvious. He's a he's a nonstop babbling list of excuses, which are non sequiturs, which are illogical, (laughs) which just don't hold water. But that's that's his mo. And you know, get ready for another year on the campaign campaign trail of exactly uh, that same sort of you know cause and effect nonsense. Yep, and it's going to be frustrating um, for sure. And Pete, I just wanted to go over Judge Engoron's latest ruling in the case. This story was breaking last week as we were recording last week's episode, and we briefly mentioned it, but there's a lot of good stuff in this ruling I wanted to go over in more depth. This is from CNN reporting. The New York trial judge overseeing Trump's civil fraud trial wrote a scathing denial of the former president's latest attempt to toss the state attorney general's case against him potentially a preview of a tough outcome for Trump as the trial process winds down. So this was last week when, for a fifth time, judges' lawyers asked for a direct verdict in his favor, and he got laughed out of court. Judge Arthur Engeron slammed Trump's accounting experts and rejected key points of the defense in an order Monday, this is last Monday, denying a motion for directed verdict filed by Trump's attorneys after trial testimony ended. It would be, quote, a glaring flaw to assume testimony from Trump accounting expert Eli Bartoff and the other expert Jason Flemons. It would be a a glaring flaw uh, to assume that those are true and accurate. That's what Engeron wrote. Quote, Bartoff is a tenured professor, but all that his testimony proves is that for a million dollars or so, some experts will say whatever you want them to say, (laughs) unquote. (laughs) He went on to say, by doggedly attempting to justify every misstatement, Professor Bartov lost all credibility. Engoron added, defendants also trot out two of their standard canards that valuations are subjective and that the law only penalizes material deviations. These both fall into the category of let no one be fooled. Evaluation can be based on different criteria and analyzed different ways, the judge said, but a lie is still a lie. The judge on Monday also knocked a defense argument frequently touted by Trump that disclaimers on his financial statements protect him from liability. Quote, they are not disclaimers at all. 
They are not the defendant's statements, and they certainly do not shield defendants from liability. If anything, they expose defendants to liability. That's <laughs> what he said. He also said he found it did attorney general's expert on disgorgement credible and said that the banks that lent Trump the money were injured, despite the defense claims that the banks love Trump's business. Quote, if you pay a lower interest rate on a loan by overstating the value of any of your assets, thus lowering the perceived risk to the lender, your gains are ill-gotten. That's what Judge Angoran said. He went on to say that the instant lenders made millions of dollars and were happy with the transactions does not mean that they were not damaged by lending at a lower interest rate than they otherwise would have been. So, you know, kind of just exactly what we've been saying, how this damage, how this disgorgement comes about. It, sure, the banks made money, but they didn't make as much money as they could have because you should have been charged a higher interest rate for those loans. Yeah. And look, the, the banks have a duty to the shareholders to maximize the profit. I mean, that's whether or not there's a shareholder lawsuit coming. I mean, who knows? But at the end of the day, if you know you lost one or two points or however much it was on lower interest rates because Trump falsified this, you know, how the, the health of his financial situation, it, it, it's lost money. It's lost money to the bank. It's lost money to the bank shareholders. And, I, you know, and going back to Bartop, I mean, his opportunity, I mean, I'm glad he got his near million dollars, but to have a judge in writing say that you have lost all credibility, your future employment potential as an expert, that's the kind of thing that an opposing attorney if Bartov chooses to go and, you know, appears an expert at another trial, you got to believe the opposing attorney is going to sit there and say, oh, let's pull out this opinion. Now, I would, it's a, yeah. the judge here says by, you know, you lost all credibility by doggedly <laughs> attempting to justify every statement. Why, why should we, we, he didn't believe you then. Why should we believe you now? So mm -hmm. I hope that $960,000 was worth it because like <laughs> yeah. everything else that, you know, associates with Trump, you attach yourself to a stench that you will never, ever wash off. It is like, you know, the the modern day version of the blood on Lady Macbeth's hands that will never, never be scrubbed off. It's the, the yeah. Trump stench. Not only would I sell my entire future reputation for a million dollars, I wouldn't sell my soul for it either. So I'm not sure why Bartoff did this. All right. We have some more news to get to, but we have to take another quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. 
and a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. Our final batch of Hall of Fame patrons to thank. January 20, baby, we share a birthday. A dinosaur in dental school. A dyslexic agnostic insomniac who lays awake every night wondering if there really is a dog. Chris Simpson, David in Brooklyn, Lance Buckley, Greg Kreimer, Charles Jones, and Patty B. You guys are amazing, awesome. I love you, uh, and I will always love you, Whitney Houston style. Thank you so much for all that you do to contribute to this show. You seriously, first of all, I mean, you make the show possible, but you also make high wages and benefits possible for our team. So thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. We have a few more stories from Fulton County this week. We're going to jump back to Georgia. I had an in-depth conversation with Tamar Hallerman at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about her interview and her colleague's interview with Fonnie Willis. Now that will air this Friday, two days from now on the Daily Beans. So I hope uh, that you enjoy that interview. But some of the major takeaways that we can mention here, uh, Fonnie Willis expects more plea deals, but only after motions are done. She explained, and it makes sense, that the defendants are going to try to get this dismissed or their counts taken down or you know, through, through pretrial motions. And then once those motions are exhausted, then you're going to start to see more plea deals. And that makes sense. If I'm a defense attorney, I'm going to be like, well, let's see if we can get these charges thrown out on any number of grounds, or let's see if we can, you know, take this piece of evidence out, or let's see if we can, you know, really increase our favor or our ability to win or defend ourselves in this case before we take a plea deal, right? And so as soon as those, uh, so far, I believe Fonnie Willis has asked for the drop dead plea negotiations to happen in June, like no more after June, but Judge McAfee has not yet set a date. Um, and I think what he did is, is during a hearing is he said, I'm, I'm loath to set a date for that. But you, by all means, Fonnie Willis, can. You can tell the defendants, hey, I'm not going to take any negotiated pleas after this date. So I think it's just going to be up to her. Um, she also said she wouldn't be, to, we shouldn't be surprised if we see her in court like we saw her in the Harrison Floyd um, what was that, a motion for revocation of bond because he attacked Ruby Freeman on the internet. Uh, she personally argued that, and she said, don't be surprised if you see me in court for this trial. She's also prepared to start the trial before August 5th, if the schedule permits. Um, and this is kind of where the trial calendar comes into play, right? Because I, I want to point out that, you know, we're waiting for the, the like the, 
the granddaddy of all trials is the Jack Smith DC trial, in my opinion. And I think most, most other jurisdictions recognize that. Um, and so that's kind of up in the air right now. That whole case is stayed. The pretrial schedule is stayed pending Trump's interlocutory immunity motion that is now being uh, argued and briefed uh, in front of the D.C. Circuit Court. The Supreme Court said they would not take this up before the appellate court ruled. And uh, Lawrence Tribe did a piece for MSNBC. He wanted to remind us about a, a, a sleeper case here that we might have forgotten about. He said the potential delay of Donald Trump's federal criminal trial on charges of conspiring to interfere with the 2020 election raises a little discussed possibility. His first criminal trial could be held in Manhattan on state charges. Unquestionably, it would be best for the D.C. trial to go first. The grand jury's indictment concerns an attempted crime against the nation. We all saw in real time. And while Trump was the president, it's yet to be proven in court, but it has to rank as the greatest presidential betrayal in the nation uh, of the nation in history. Uh, so he's talking about the Alvin Bragg case, the Stormy Daniels. And it's not just Stormy Daniels. There's a couple other hush money. There's a, a security guy uh, that was paid off. There's the Karen McDougal catch and kill. It's like a group of um, in-kind campaign contributions illegally made and through falsifying of business records. 34, I believe, felony counts of falsifying business records. That is set to go in, in late March. So the trial, the Bragg trial, uh, we don't know. I have I researched this and I couldn't find Alvin Bragg saying how long he thought the trial would take. But many say it could last for several weeks. Um, and I'm unsure if they'll wait for the D.C. trial or, or if the Supreme Court schedule, if there is one, if the Supreme Court, after the appellate court hears arguments on January 9th and makes their decision, if the Supreme Court then grants cert to hear the immunity thing, and then they set arguments, you know, for like May or June, then I think Alvin Bragg has time to go. But if SCOTUS comes back and denies cert, or if they set arguments for February or even March, then I think maybe Bragg hangs back. But I think what Lawrence Tribe is trying to say here is that don't worry if the Supreme Court screws us over on the D.C. case and puts it out to the end of summer or something like that, we've got another trial that we can get done uh, between now and then. Yeah. I And I think it is unlikely that, you know, and we're talking about like with the Supreme Court, what they would pass on and what they'd take. My sense is the Supreme Court is going to want to hear all of these issues. D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, by all accounts, are is moving very quickly. And I would anticipate that just as soon as the uh, the oral arguments are done, that in a matter of days, not weeks, uh, we would see some decision coming out. And then the question is, do they ask for, you know, does the losing side ask for an en banc hearing? Does the, you know, do they go to the Supreme Court? Does the Supreme Court at that point accept uh, the case and the timetable? We'll see. I, I'm very curious to see the sense of speed uh, or not that the Supreme mm-hmm. Court rules with. But I agree. I think that's the right time frame that I think by, you know, late January, early February, we'll know whether or not Alvin Bragg has time to bring his case. Yeah. Um, and my dream scenario is that the within days, the D.C. Circuit Court denies immunity. And then Trump will want to wait his, I think, regular 45 days or whatever he has to file on banc. 
But I think Jack Smith will file an expedited en banc review uh, to say, hey, if he wants to go on bonk, can, can you make him do it faster? Or, and, you know, that might come out of the D.C. Circuit Court. D.C. Circuit Court might say, uh, you have seven days uh, and we are lifting the stay on the trial in the meantime. They can do that as well. That would be my dream scenario. Then Trump is forced to file on bonk if he wants to do that. And, and same to the Supreme Court. They could also make that ruling to curtailing the number of, no, you know, days he would normally have which I think is 90, um, to go to the Supreme Court and say, you've got a week, you've got 14 days um, to do this, and we're lifting the stay in the meantime. And then he would have to go and ask for an emergency stay, and it would force the issue, the higher court. And then, of course, I would love it if the Supreme Court says, we're not hearing this, and it just lets the circuit court's ruling stand. That would be the fastest, I think, way. And then uh, it is my dream scenario. I think it's unlikely it'll go that way, but that's what I'm hoping for. So we'll see what ends up happening. Yeah, I can see them. I mean, if they're smart and if they want to lift the stay, that would be absolutely the thing that would be within the Circuit Court of Appeals ability to do and it would force the issue. I don't, you know, the Supreme Court not denying cert, I think that's a that's a that's a reach, but uh, certainly there are ways that the the three-judge panel uh, of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals could accelerate it. And we'll see. I mean, I think there's a decent chance of that. Um, but I do I do think this ends up uh, at Supreme Court just hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but, you know, it, while we wait, um, you know, there are more things we can watch, including Jeffrey Clark, who, again, lost his bid to dismiss his case. The, the losses keep on mounting for the environmental lawyer, attorney general, aspiring uh, seditionist. Now, this is from Darren Samuelson at The Messenger. Trump's co-defendant and ex-Justice Department loyalist Jeffrey Clark lost on Thursday in his bid to have his part of the Georgia 2020 election racketeering case immediately put on hold until a federal appeals court decides where he can fight the charges. A three-judge panel from the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, which included a pair of Trump appointees, ruled that Clark, quote, cannot show any chance of success on the merits, unquote, and so, quote, there can be no basis for granting a stay or in the words of, uh, you know, a former assistant White House counsel, go back to your office when there's an oil spill. We'll give you a call. Um, <laughs> Clark, Clark is appealing a lower court decision that he must stand trial in Fulton County Superior Court alongside 14 other co-defendants, including the former president. The former senior DOJ official is accused in the Fulton County indictment of helping pursue a plan via his role inside the federal government that would have kept Trump in the White House for another term based on election fraud grounds that Clark falsely claimed the Justice Department had observed. Clark's prospects in the 11th Circuit, and no oral arguments hearing has even been scheduled yet, remain murky. On Monday, a separate three-judge panel unanimously denied former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' bid to make the same leap from Georgia into federal court. That opinion got issued on the next business day after the court heard oral arguments, <laughs> with Meadows now on the clock to decide whether to appeal their decision for a rehearing before the same three-judge panel, ask all of the judges uh, in the circuit for an en banc review, or to seek a hearing before the U.S. Supreme Court. And the 11th Circuit is also considering a separate bid from the so-called fake electors David Schaefer, Kathy Latham, and Sean Still, who are also seeking to get their portion of the Georgia case shifted into federal court. Like Meadows and Clark, they lost in the federal district court. 
No oral arguments hearing has been scheduled. On Friday, Circuit Court Judge Nancy Abudu, President Biden appointee, granted the three co-defendants an extension to file their next brief by January 18th. Uh, again, the prospect, if you if, if Mark Meadows, the chief of staff to the president with extraordinary right. broad duties, uh, gets shot down, I cannot see Jeffrey Clark, let alone the three electors who are claiming that, well, you know, since we're federal electors, we're federal <laughs> officials. I Come on, give me a break. I pay federal taxes. Therefore, I'm a federal. I mean, they're, 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 no, it does, that's not the way it works. Um, Especially so, the, the ruling from prior saying it doesn't apply to former federal officials. Although I think SCOTUS has a good chance of overturning that. I, I, and I think it probably should apply to former federal officials, the removal statute. But yep. we'll see what ends up happening, you know. Yeah, agree with you. I mean, there, there's too much mischief that, you know, as both of us, former federal officials, I can, you know, what I want to prevent is not so much, you know, the the bad faith reason these arguments are being made by Meadows and others. But the, in fact, if you get, you know, Attorney General Jeff Clark in the next Trump administration who would choose to go after all kinds or, you know, our Ken Paxton down in Texas decides that while at the VA, Allison Gillen did something horrible in Texas and chooses to charge you, it seems to me that, you know, former officials should have some measure of uh, defense, even though they are no longer in the government. But absolutely, without a question, if it is action outside the scope of your official duties, I mean, that's the sort of, you know, you need both planks. And that's where all of these things fall apart. I mean, sedition, you know, obstructing peaceful transfer of power, nullifying a lawful vote, these are not in anybody's legitimate official job duties. And so that's where I think all of these uh, fail. Yeah, agreed. Well, thank you, everyone. Again, thanks to all of our Hall of Fame patrons. I hope everyone had a wonderful, peaceful, happy, delightful holiday, um, whether it was with your fam or your chosen fam or yourself. Uh, and also, I want to let everybody know who doesn't, you know, who doesn't all, who have, always have the best holiday season, that I see you too, and that uh, I'm sending my thoughts to you as well. Uh, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here for the year? For the year? No, that's it. Again, enjoy uh, your New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Get some rest and, and buckle up because we got a lot coming next year. Yeah, we'll be we'll be doing a, a bonus episode for patrons this week. So I guess that will technically be the last episode of the year. And Fair. I'll be letting everybody know when we'll send the RSVPs out for our April 20th DC hangout, um, our thank you to patrons for making this show work. I'll, I'll let you know in plenty of, with a plenty of advance notice when that RSVP is going to hit your inbox. Um, and uh, for those who aren't patrons, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful new year. We will talk to you again in the new year. January is jam packed with stuff that we're going to be covering on this show. So um, make sure that you're listening and, and Hey, recommend the show to a friend. Um, because if, if folks want to stay on top of what's going on in these trials that are happening uh, in January and all the upcoming trials in 2024, I think this is a pretty good source and I appreciate uh, appreciate you listening. And Pete, thank you for being with me this year. I appreciate that as well. It's been a well. blast. Yeah, it's been truly, truly great uh, to work with you, my friend. Everybody, we'll see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M.
SOW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.